This is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, Episode 9, Are You Legitimately Jewish? A friend of mine died um, the other day. His name was Rabbi Ben Romer of Blessed Memory, um, and he lived in Richmond, Virginia, and I was asked to come and officiate his funeral, which was a great honor. Matter of fact, when I found out he died and when I found out that um, I was being asked to go up there and to talk about this man and to help uh, myself and others mourn together publicly, I remember I sat on the couch and uh, my wife looked at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, I'm not a righteous man. What I meant by that was I wasn't good enough. He was a great man and someone like me just wasn't going to be able to do him justice. And I think I did in the end. Matter of fact, I know I did because people told me. Um, it was an amazing, powerful experience to be up there. We drove up. We slept maybe an hour or two, uh, and then we drove up and got to Richmond, Virginia around uh, you know one in the afternoon. We had left at four in the morning. We got there, and we spent time with his family and met some of his friends whom we had never met before. Um, and we basically prepared. Um, and then through that process, we got to know in a deeper way the community that he belonged to, Bone Kodesh. And uh, I'm still at a loss for words. It's, it's been several days now, and I thought that maybe I would be able to articulate kind of what that experience was like, but I can't, not in, not in any kind of... Uh, way that makes any sense. There are things in life where you just have to experience them, and the power of what happens to you is the fact that you can't say anything. I sometimes wonder if that's why Moses was described as a stutterer and as a person who could not speak, um, that it wasn't so much that he had some kind of speech impediment or something like that, but that the power of what he was receiving was so great that he couldn't orate to B'nai Yisrael. He couldn't actually talk to um, Israel, to what would become the Jewish people, the ancient Israelites, about what God was talking to him about, because it was so profound that even he had trouble putting it together. And so he needed his brother, Aaron, uh, to sort of piece together the, the little bits uh, that he was able to say, and Aaron was able to sort of uh, communicate this in a much better way. Uh, sometimes you experience things and it's so difficult to put them into words that you need the help of others to do it for you. This podcast isn't actually about that, but it's about something that was very important uh, to Ben and uh, Rabbi Ben and uh, is important to me. He and I worked together on Darshan Yeshiva, an online Jewish school. And one of the big things that we did at the school, and will continue to do at this school, and I continue to do them in his honor, uh, in his name. Uh, matter of fact, he's listed on our uh, website as the co-founder of our conversion program. Uh, even though he's passed away, his energy and his enthusiasm is still part of what we do. But uh, what was very important to us was our conversion to Judaism program. And when we would talk to students 
about the conversion process and all these other things, we'd get asked the same questions. We still get asked the same questions over and over again. What about Israel? What about this particular movement? Uh, which, uh, which community will accept me and which won't? What synagogue am I allowed to join? And we keep hearing the same things over and over again, and we've put them on the website, and we've done all of these different things. Um, but we still get asked over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how many times we put it up and how many times we talk about it. Uh, it's the same questions, and it's the same questions that I've been talking about long before Darshan Yeshiva in the early beginning of Punctura. And the question is, are you legitimately Jewish? doesn't necessarily have to relate to people who are converting. This is a question for anybody. Are you legitimately Jewish? You're calling yourself Jewish, or you want to be Jewish, and you're calling yourself Jewish, or you were, you were born into a Jewish family, or you were born into a Jew-ish family. You're a Jew-boo. You're, you're a Jewish Buddhist, or you're Jewish sort of on your dad's side, but you go to the Unitarian Church, right? All these different sort of things. Are you legitimately Jewish? And that's what this podcast is going to address, and I'm going to address it once and for all, because it's such a big question, but it has such a simple answer. So I'm going to start by asking this question. Do you remember the first time that you used chopsticks? <laughs> really? The first time you ever used chopsticks, do you remember? Uh, what was that like? What was the experience like? So perhaps you were a kid and your parents took you to a Chinese food restaurant, or perhaps you went to a Thai restaurant when you were in college, or something like that, and you go into this restaurant, and you sit down and you notice there's no silverware. You know, Perhaps there's just a napkin and a glass for water. Um, and, uh, you know, some things might run through your mind as you look around. So... I suspect it was really three things. Uh, the first thing that ran through your mind is that you had no idea what to do with these little wooden sticks. Do you stab the food and eat it like a kebab? Uh, you know that you hold both of the sticks in your hand, so do I, do I sort of grip it uh, and, and take it like a shovel and scoop things up? How do I eat rice, right? Do I eat one grain at a time? And you're, you're looking around, and this is the second thing, and you see that everyone else around you is completely confident in what's going on. There's all these people in this Chinese food restaurant, this Thai restaurant, and they're all laughing and having a good time, and they're eating, and they're magically able to make these sticks into like food portals. Uh, you see one guy take the chopsticks and he just maneuvers it like he's playing bass guitar, and he you know, is able to pick up the, some gigantic piece of food, or he's able to scoop rice. How do you eat rice with a stick? And the worst part is that you see little like six-year-old kids having no problem. They're just banging it out. You're also kind of wondering, like, am I going to get a splinter <laughs> using these things? And then that moment happens where you're sitting at the table and perhaps your friends are doing a great job or your parents or, or whomever, or maybe you're by yourself and you wonder if it's socially acceptable for you to just ask for a fork. And so you look around and you try to see, do other people use forks? Is there a bin where the forks are? Would it be weird if I like went to the restroom and on the way I just stole a fork? You know, <laughs> what do I do here? Um, so that's maybe another thought that ran through your mind. And then there, then there's this really difficult part. 
And the difficult part is when you are looking at people and they're doing great and they've got their, uh, you know, their chow mein or whatever they're eating and you realize that these confident people, confident chopstick using people can see right through you. They can see that you are an amateur, that you have no idea what's going on and it makes you feel like a total loser. And you think, please don't look at me. Please, please don't see me. Uh, I know you know everything about chopsticks, and it's obvious that I'm not clearly as sophisticated as you are, and I'm going to have to resort to ask for a fork, or even worse, if they don't have forks, those little um, chopsticks that they give little kids where it's like, it has the piece of paper and the rubber band, so it's like, you know, <laughs> it's like a little, um, I don't know what you would even call it, but it's like a little tool that you would find at William Sonoma or something like that, um, and and you're thinking like, can I just get my food and go home? Can I can I maybe get it in a to go box? Um, because you're so embarrassed, you're just embarrassed, and the problem is you don't feel like you're legitimate on some level. You have no idea what's going on. Everyone else around you is completely confident in what's going on. And those confident people can see right through you and it makes you feel like a total loser. Does this remind you of how you feel about being Jewish? Does this trigger you in some kind of way? Perhaps you had this experience the first time you went to synagogue. You have no idea what's going on. Do I sit? Do I stand? I have this book. What language is it in? Hebrew? What do I do with this thing? What page are we on? It's backwards? I have to read the book backwards? What? And then there's this guy sitting next to me, and he's asking me, like, you know, I've never seen you here before. <laughs> I just got an email. Uh, I, I've never seen you here before. Uh, you know, what is your name? What's your family's name? Where are they from? What do you do for a living? Do you have kids? And I'm wondering, like, why is this guy being such a, like, uh, a, a goof? Why does he keep talking to me and asking me, like, what's my name? And, and my name is, you know, John McGinnis, and that's not a Jewish name, and he knows something's going on. Uh, everyone else is completely confident about what's going on. This is West Texas, for God's sakes. How do all of these people know Hebrew? Uh, their parents must have spoken it in the home. That's how. Yeah, they all spoke Hebrew, and I'm just totally uneducated. And now someone's passing around cups of grape juice? What is this? Are we, like, uh, is this, like, the the blood of Christ? Wait, that's a different religion. What are we doing here? Communion? Um, you know, what, what's going to happen next? And now everyone is standing up and they're on their tiptoes and they keep saying kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Like, what are we, are, are we doing exercises now? What, what's going on? Oh man, now they're bowing. <laughs> and, and then you cut to this scene in your mind that's like the Stephen King, uh, uh, story carry and in, in your head it's just they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you and you're thinking can I just can I go home now can I yeah um, I, clearly I'm not legitimately Jewish perhaps you never even made it to that point perhaps you've thought about going to a synagogue you thought about going to a Sukkot event you thought about going to a public menorah lighting and you're like I can't go They'll all know that I'm not legit. I have no idea what's going on. I won't know how to participate. They're going to ask me to do something. There's going to be this awkward situation. I have no idea how to process this. I'm just going to stay at home, right? I'll tell you a quick story. So we have an online synagogue. 
oneshoal.org. That's O-N-E-S-H-U-L.org. You can also just uh, you know Google Punctura Online Synagogue. That'll pop up too. Um, and so I did this event at One Shoal to talk about this. And I started by saying, here in this space right now, the space being the website and a little chat room, I said, you are legitimate. You are here. You showed up. And even though it wasn't part of our reading calendar, it wasn't the right parsha, it wasn't the right Torah portion, I decided to give a stump speech about how the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Jewish law, if you want to call it that, uh, was being given to every person here on earth, that it wasn't a relic in heaven that some Jewish superman was going to bring down for us. And that's part of Moses, basically his, his dying words, his dying speech at the end of uh, Deuteronomy. So it's Deuteronomy 29.9 through uh, uh, chapter 30. So he, I use that line often. The Torah is not in heaven for someone to bring it to you that it is, the Torah is given to you here on earth. That's a very important statement. Matter of fact, it's the entire justification for the Talmud. Literally, the entire Talmud is justified on that one line, that we as Jews have the right to interpret Jewish law and frankly to add stuff. We're not supposed to add and subtract from the Torah, okay, but we add and subtract from the Torah. Matter of fact, in the Talmud, rabbis used the Torah to negate the Torah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. When I hear the phrase Torah true Jews, meaning that there's a certain group of Jews that are more religious than everyone else, I think we are not Torah true because we add and subtract all the time, and the Talmud is proof of that. In any case, that's my own digression. Um, but I use this line, the Torah is not in heaven, it's here on earth, uh, as an appeal for volunteers. So I say, of course you can lead a Shabbat service. Just write one, or I'll give you one, and you just do it. It's a script. Uh, of course you can lead a Torah study. All you have to do is sit down with a text and say, okay, I'll read it, and let's talk about it. You don't have to come up with any great, uh, amazing uh, lessons or anything like that. And if you want to, there are probably hundreds of websites where you can download that and you just use it. Matter of fact, I was at a Torah study, uh, one of our rabbis at Darshan Yeshiva, uh, Rachel Bregman, Rabbi Rachel Bregman, uh, was doing a Torah study in uh, her congregation down in Brunswick, Georgia, Beth Tefillah. And her lesson plan, if you want to call it that, was two pages from Chabad.org. I mean, she's a rabbi and she had some material. And it wasn't hers that she wrote. She just really liked it. It was text that was written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It was great. You can do that. That's easy. I'm sure that if you are listening to this right now, you have the power to go online, find something, bring it to Torah study, and say, I found this. Uh, let's read the text. Let's read this little handout, and let's talk about it. And I thought that in my speech that I was giving on one show, that I was like channeling the oratory spirit of like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, the Lubavitch Rebbe, and that guy who used to sell ShamWows uh, <laughs> on late night TV. I mean, I really felt like my appeal, it was like, a, it was like the high holidays appeal for me on this uh, online uh, synagogue service. I thought I was doing amazing stuff. And so... The thing, though, is that it didn't work. 
I got an email immediately following the service where this person said, you know, thanks, that was a great class, Rabbi. I'm super pumped. Thank you for getting me thinking. So I replied, awesome. So when do you want to start teaching, leading, contributing in some way, whatever you want to do? What are you about? What do you like? Be my friend. Their answer was, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do any of that. I'm not gonna lead a, a Shabbat service. I'm not gonna do a Torah study. I, I'm not, I can't get involved um, because I'm, I'm not legitimately Jewish. And I got several emails like that. One email, which I've kind of fudged the details um, for you, but it basically said, uh, you know, thanks for the uh, positive encouragement, Patrick, uh, but you're wrong. Uh, I'm about as legitimately Jewish as a PhD from a mail-order college in Romania. So I'm just going to kind of hide in the back row of the proverbial online synagogue. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm going to just hang back and I just, I'm not... I'm not that kind of person, and, and I've got some issues, and no, so thanks, but no, and uh, I, I'm not worth your time. Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of those kinds of emails. So this keeps happening all the time. I keep being asked these questions about legitimacy, you know, um, questions like, what about Jewish law? Who do I need to uh, appease? Well, uh, what about, I was born Jewish, but uh, my dad is my Jewish parent. My mom isn't. Um, what is this concept of machmir that I've heard about before? What about Israel? Who makes all these decisions? Uh, maybe I want to convert, so I'm going to convert uh, Orthodox. That way everyone has to accept me. Now, what about my certificate? I don't know supposed to be a certificate. Is the certificate proof? Can I maybe photocopy it and put it in my pocket so that then if someone asks if I'm Jewish, I can just hold it out and they can see that. And maybe they can even Google, like, could I have like an ID number or something? <laughs> the ID number part is not true and no one's ever said they were going to photocopy a certificate. But I almost feel that way. I almost feel like this is something that people need. You know, like people, there are certain people that they need like a, it's like their voter ID card. They need their Jewish ID card. And Part of me weirdly wants to just start handing those out. Um, I wouldn't, because we don't need them. Because we don't believe in that. That's not what we do. That is not Jewish. Um, but I guess I just want to go over some of these things and just put the question to rest. So here we go. Halakha, Jewish law. Halakha existed after the codification of the Hebrew Bible. So this idea that halakha came down from Mount Sinai, that's a beautiful poetic concept. What they're trying to say is something different than the literal, you know, Torah from Sinai. Like literally the Talmud did not come from Sinai. The way that we practice Judaism did not come from there. Um, but what they're saying when they say Torah from Sinai is that it is that uh, the way that we practice Judaism today is as valid that it comes from the same line of consciousness that goes all the way back to Moses and Israel having the Mount Sinai experience. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that literally the Talmud came down from heaven. Now, there are some people who believe that. That's great. There are some people that when they say the word Torah, they're saying uh, uh, Torah, prophets, writings, the entire Talmud, their particular understanding of Talmud, um, the Zohar, Mishnah Torah, which was a book written by Maimonides, um, 
uh, what else? I mean, you know, everything that their particular rabbi wrote, uh, all of the uh, halakhic decisions that were made by Rabbonim, different rabbis uh, throughout time, um, and then whatever the current consensus is about whatever, you know, what kind of dish detergent you can use. That's actually a question. Oh my gosh, that is actually a question. What is halakhically acceptable dish detergent? I swear to you, it's a thing. Look it up. So, what is halakha? What is Jewish law? The Torah offers a very specific way in which the Israelites had to worship God. The idea that um, the Torah sort of promotes is that the pagans, the non-Jews, the foreigners, the whatever, had a relationship to the divine where if they sacrificed something, if they gave up something, and that could be an animal, it could be wine, it could be their own blood, it could be their child, they would get in return something greater, right? So I'm going to sacrifice my best flock, you know, one or two animals or whatever, and in return, the gods are going to give me 10 or 20 or whatever. Or I have to offer the sacrifice because this god and this god are fighting each other and I need to help make peace, Right? So it's this kind of a relationship. Judaism teaches something different, which is that the relationship between God and man exists at all times. And anything that we do that is, quote-unquote, sacrifice. So in the Torah, it's literally sacrificing animals. After the loss of the temple and the decision that we were never going to rebuild um, was uh, that prayer would replace sacrifice. The idea is that we commit sins or we transgress in some way or another, all we have to do is make good on it. I used to work in a restaurant, and I made a mistake when I was uh, dishing up some food. And I, I remember I said to the chef, ah, oh, darn it. I said a word that's harsher than darn it. But this is a clean podcast. So I said, oh, darn it. Why did I use that spoon? That was dumb, whatever. And the chef said to me, it doesn't matter what mistakes you make. It matters how you correct them. And that's basically what Judaism teaches, right? Like, you're going to make mistakes. It is understood that you are going to make mistakes. God in the Torah actually says to the Israelites, you will go into the land and you will transgress against me, but I am still with you. That's the kind of relationship that Jews have with God. God is not disappearing. God is not going anywhere. God is not angry. I mean, God does get angry, but God gets angry when we don't uphold this covenant not in some abstract, ridiculous, weird way where God is fighting with another God and, and what have you. So that's the relationship. So halakha, Jewish law, is a response to the fact that we used to have a very clear way of doing things, and now we don't have that anymore. We don't exactly have a clear way of understanding what we were supposed to do because we don't have a temple. If we had a Messiah, Moshiach, an anointed one, by the way, not someone who's born from a virgin and, you know, all these other things. But if we had a Moshiach, if we had a Messiah, and we lived in this messianic age and we had a temple, we would know what to do. In the meantime, we have halacha, we have Jewish law, which is a, a passing down of ideas from sages and rabbis and all these other people that kind of tries to keep the balance going the way that it used to. So that's what halacha is. Now, when people talk about converting or being legitimately Jewish somehow, halakha is part of it. Here's what I would argue, though. We say it's halakha, 
but it's really paranoia, right? Halakha is about maintaining a spiritual relationship. Paranoia is about how to appease somebody, right? The idea is that there is some authority, and it's always a human authority, it's never God. It's always a human authority who we need to please in order to be Jewish. So, I am converting. I need to figure out who the authority figure is who will accept my conversion. I need, it's, it's like going to the IRS or something. I need a, a stamp. I need a seal of approval that proves that I did the right thing. Or uh, I'm a Jewish person and I want to uh, do something, right, in the Jewish world. And I need a rabbi who will say that it's okay, that I, I'm doing it this particular way. Um, or I need a community that's going to accept me as a Jew, but I have these um, conditions, right? So I have these things like uh, I'm, I'm LGBT, and so I need to make sure that my community, that, that authority, the community somehow has authority to decide if I am Jewish enough or not. I need to be accepted by some group of people or person or persons uh, who are going to rubber stamp my Jewish identity. So who accepts who and why? I had someone tell me once that they were going to convert with a conservative rabbi, and I said, why? And he said, well, because I'm really not conservative, um, but if I convert with a conservative rabbi, then everyone who's not orthodox has to accept me. So it's a, it was like an insurance policy, almost, like a proof Jewish insurance policy. And I get that. I understand where they're coming from. But who accepts who and why? Let's, let's kind of talk about this. First of all, there's no conspiracy out there to prevent people from being Jewish. There's no sort of one body of authority that gets to make this stuff. And most Jews on the street, if you're walking down the street and you have a microphone and you, and you go to some Jewish folks and you say, like, in America at least, and in Europe, and you say, hi, um, you know, this is Steve or whatever, and Steve uh, just converted, what do you think of that? If you hand them the microphone, they'll say, okay, that's cool, sure, or mazel tov, or uh, get away from me, I'm trying to run my errands. Um, so, you know, so that's what it is. Most, I, I, I do not know, I've never had a single person, not one, who has ever come up to me and said, um, well, I don't accept your conversions, right? Like, never. I have never had this happen. And I'm not a big deal, like I'm not some huge celebrity or whatever, but people know who I am. You know, you go online, you can go, uh, you could probably find my address, seriously. I mean, it's, it's really a miracle that, uh, that this has worked out as well for me as it has. Um, but, you know, people who know me know what I do, and they know that I, I work in conversions, among many other things. I've never had someone come to me straight up right off the street or in the shoal or, or whatever and say, well, I just don't accept your conversions. They don't count, right? So that means that their communities would accept those conversions as well. And by the way, all the, Jew, all the rabbis that I work with at Darshan Yeshiva, same deal, same exact deal. But in any case, I don't know of anyone ever having this problem. Um, you know, you, you, just, you just go. You just go into a community and it's fine. Um, now, there is an exception to that, and it's an important exception. And the important exception is the Orthodox communities. Notice that I say communities, because, here we go, there's no such thing as Orthodox Judaism. It doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. First of all, the word Orthodox 
didn't come from Orthodox Jews. It came from Reformed Jews, and it was a way of pushing against traditional Judaism because Reformed Jews said, we are practicing prophetic Judaism. You people, you other people, are Orthodox. And so it's funny that the Orthodox community sort of took that and was like, heck yeah, we're Orthodox. And now that's a thing. Like, that has some kind of weight to it. It has some kind of power. It reminds me of in the hip-hop world, where hip-hop you know, artists started using slang that used to be, uh, and, and still does today, is used by racists, right? Like, they took those words and made them powerful on some level. Um, you listen to hip-hop, and if you didn't understand the context of that, you would think, well, it's okay for me to use this dirty word because, well, they use it all the time. That's not the point. The point is that they've taken a word from their, I mean, I'm just going to say the word enemy, and that's not really right in the context of Judaism, but we'll just go with that. Their adversaries, maybe, is another word. Um, and they owned it, right? They made it something. Um, and that's what happened in orthodoxy. In any case... There's no such thing as Orthodox Judaism, and there's no such thing as uh, the Orthodox community. Orthodoxy is broken up into countless numbers of groups based on a lot of different factors. That's a whole other video. A few terms to throw out. There's traditional. There's modern Orthodox. There's Hasidic. Uh, there's Haredi or ultra-Orthodox, although I don't know of any ultra-Orthodox Jews who like the term ultra-Orthodox. Um, Haredi is a bit better, or uh, there, there are Orthodox Jews who define themselves based on the community they belong to. So you have Satmar, uh, you have uh, Chabad, you have Bostoner, you have Litvak, you have all of these other sort of groups. Then you have really extremist groups like Lev Tahor, which means pure heart. And that's a whole other thing. Oh my gosh, that is a whole other thing. All of the things are in that. All of the things. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you have religious Zionist, which is another group. Um, you have people who just call themselves Orthodox. You have people who say, I'm not Orthodox, I'm Frum, which means religious, which kind of means Orthodox. But whatever, whatever, leave that one alone. Um, so you have all of these different categories, and all of these different groups have all of their little issues with each other, all of their disagreements, right? You have open orthodoxy. And so you have this idea that you can have orthodox female spiritual leaders, rabbi or rabbah or maharat, right? And then those people are considered the wild, crazy, liberal, whatever types. And so the more traditional, for lack of a better word, right-wing uh, uh, orthodox folks think that those people are nuts or sometimes they love them and talk about it in secret, but then publicly they, they just don't like each other. And then within that, you have disagreements about uh, halakha, about Jewish law. You accept this, you drink this milk, you know, no, you can't drink that milk. Well, yes, we can, because this rabbi whose um, you know, commentary we agree with says we can. Well, no, you can't, and, and you know, all of this stuff. So they have their own issues within themselves. So then if you then drop something like conversion or matrilineal and patrilineal descent, all of these other things, it is like, it's not like, you know, oil and water. It's like oil and dynamite. I mean, it just, it goes everywhere. So all of this stuff, it's important to remember, is independent of you, right? These are different groups that have their own way of doing Jewish, and 
that's independent of you. That has nothing to do with you and whether you're legitimately Jewish or not in their eyes. So, the Reform Movement, very early on, decided that they supported patrilineal descent, meaning, traditionally, Jews were thought of as people who were born into Judaism, born into Jewish identity, and am, a people, through mothers, matrilineal. Reform Movement said, you know what, we accept both. We accept matrilineal and patrilineal. Uh, Reconstructionists, as far as I'm aware, same deal. Humanistic Jews, same deal. Put that into the mix with all the varying little galaxies of orthodoxy. Okay, pushback, not going to work. Jew Jewish father, great, swell. Your last name is Bloomberg, we don't care. You're not Jewish. So that's the kind of stuff that you have in there, right? Now, I, I will make this point. Orthodoxy however you want to define it, at least in America, it's only about 10 to 15% of the Jewish world. That means that around 85% of the Jewish world does not care, is not involved in the infighting, is not involved in different ways of understanding halakha. So this idea that you need to appeal to 15% of the population that can't agree on anything anyway, is it's nonsense. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Leave it the heck alone. Leave it alone. Just leave it alone, please. So, um, there's this idea, uh, and this is why people get into this thing about, well, I need to do whatever the uh, blah 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 rabbi says. It's this idea called machmir, which means stringent. So, it's this thing that you try to do whatever the highest authority is, whoever you accept, the most stringent authority figure, so that everyone else will accept you. And it goes back to that idea of the Jewish insurance policy. The question you have to ask yourself is that in any other part of your life, would you resort to that, right? Like if you wanted to start skiing, like if you wanted skiing to be your hobby, would you immediately want to go to the best skiing instructor in the world, you know, or the group of people who are better at skiing than anyone else who are literally the authority on, uh, you know, uh, skiing, and would you then say, okay, I need you to tell me whether or not I am a skier? Like, would you do that? <laughs> would you? Would that be something you would do, right? Or some other part of your life that's very, very important outside of Jewish identity? Would you? Would your immediate thought be that you need to be validated by that group? You like to cook at home. Do you immediately then think I need Gordon Ramsay uh, to tell me whether or not I am a professional chef? The answer is probably no, and he wouldn't anyway, because he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> Actually, I don't think he's a jerk. I think he's probably a really nice guy. Um, I've been around guys like him before, uh, and they're usually sweethearts uh, if you get to know them. Anyway, that's the way that works. Now, let's talk about Israel. Israel is like the biggest quandary in the world. Whether or not you are accepted in Israel as a Jew has like a hundred different meanings. It's the on-the-street thing, right? Like if you're on the street in Tel Aviv and you do the little thing that I said about the microphone and all of that, you're going to get the same kind of answer. It's probably going to be, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> or with Israelis, they're just going to ignore you, quite frankly. That's the Sabra uh, attitude. But, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you're going to get the sort of like, who cares? So what? Uh, same deal. Go to New York. Hey, is this person legitimately Jewish? Okay, sure. Why not? Mazel tov. Uh, and that's that. 
when you're dealing with Israel politically, you're dealing with two things. Religious law, secular law. Secular law trumps religious law in Israel. Which, side note, do we have to stop using the word trump? <laughs> I just wonder. So, uh, I have a friend who his conversion case, uh, he's a rabbi, his conversion case went all the way to the Israeli Supreme Court, and secular law trumped religious law, and they accepted his conversion. He was a reform rabbi, classical in every sense. And by classical in every sense, I mean like the most radical reform rabbis. It's interesting that you would think reform Judaism would be getting more and more and more radical over time. It's actually becoming more and more conservative. And that's a whole other thing. Getting lots of ideas for episodes here. So in any case, um, yeah, so secular law trumps religious law. Always end of story. That's the way it works. However, it goes back to who do you want accepting you? Do you want the Rabbanut? Do you want the Israeli uh, religious system to accept you? Well, then you need to go to Israel, find one of those rabbis, and you need to do your conversion with them. I'll tell you, I was working in the early days of Darshan Yeshiva conversion program to get some Orthodox rabbis uh, in, in the mix. We had a couple that were fantastic. I mean, I was so excited. And then they said, well, but you know, I'll do the mentoring, but I'm not going to do the actual conversions. And I said, well, that's the job though, right? Like, what, what's the problem? And they said, well, you know, you just need on a bet din, you know, the right people. And you need, you need someone who has a lot of authority to sign off on, on the certificate. And, you know, if they, if they want to marry a Jewish person, then you need to make sure that, you know, that, that, uh, conversion is appropriate, and then when they sign the ketubah, you know, you want to make sure that, that everyone understands that everything is okay. This is orthodoxy, folks. Orthodox Jews, orthodox rabbis, who were worried about how legitimate they would be. Come on. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. Let's talk about certificates, by the way. I know that this is important to a lot of people. Let me just give you some things that will help give you a measure of hope. First of all, I converted. I became a rabbi. I helped people convert. I do not have a conversion certificate. I don't. I don't have, you know, uh, framed somewhere proof that I am a Jew. I don't have a Jewish ID card. I don't have a secret decoder ring, right? I don't have that stuff because it's not actually important. If you are concerned about Jewish identity, you need a rabbi, and you need a mikvah. That's it. That is literally all you need. That is Jewish law. That is the highest halakha. That is the most machmir you can get. You need rabbi, and you need a mikvah. If you want a beit den, great. If you want a mikvah lady, great. If you want Shabbaton weekend, if you want an aliyah, if you want all of these other things, great. Those are beautiful things. Beautiful things that you don't need. What you need to do if you are converting, have a rabbi, do the mikvah. When you use a mikvah, usually there's a guest book or an appointment book or there's some sort of certificate like that, but it's filed with the mikvah. No one gives you your like receipt, <laughs> right? You don't get your you know statement of benefits. Um, you just you fill out the thing. Usually the rabbi signs it. Rabbi often does it for you. And then if you ever had a question, if someone ever wanted to find out who you were, you just say, okay, well, 
called Temple blah, 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 and, uh, you know, asked to speak to the, to the administrative office that runs the mikvah, and the date was March 15th, 2009. And what they'll do is they'll go into their paperwork, and they'll find that date, and they'll find that, you know, booking appointment. Literally, we're not even talking about a certificate, we're talking about a booking appointment. And they'll say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, the rabbi, you know, signed the guest book. That's it. This is so more casual than people think it is. Um, the certificates don't mean anything. They don't. They only mean as much as you want them to mean. They do not mean anything to anybody. You cannot ask someone if they are Jewish legitimately. That violates Jewish law. So you can't test people. Now, you're probably wondering, well, but, you know, what if uh, on this thing that I'm going to sign, it's the synagogue membership thing, it actually asks if I converted, and what date? You, what about that? They are violating Jewish law. Oh my gosh, you guys, they are violating Jewish law, violating Jewish law, I'm like, whoa. That's, that's the truth. So don't fill it out. Or put down the date, whatever, and then that's it. They can't question you about it. Again, this violates Jewish law. They cannot ask you about it. Now, the conservative movement, who of course are rapidly declining, but, but that's its own set of problems, um, they, within their, um, within their policies, are allowed to ask. Um, and uh, so what you do is you just say, well, I went to the mikvah, the rabbi was blah, 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 and that's it. That's all you have to say. And that's fine, as far as those conservative rabbis are concerned. That's it. Mikvah, rabbi. It's what I came back to. No certificate, no, you know, movemental filing, no whatever. That's, that's all it is. Uh, for guys, you know, there's the whole snip-snip uh, situation. Yeah, that's not fun, but, you know, that's a thing. Again, if you're going with a rabbi who... Uh, is conservative, whatever, that's all taken care of. Reform rabbis, some don't require Brit Milar, Hatifat Dambrit, that's a whole other question. But here's the thing. Whatever conversion you do, like whoever you're working with, uh, if, if that's the case, um, you're probably going to stay within whatever they do. So if you have a classical reform rabbi who doesn't require Brit Milar, um, you're probably going to stay in the reform movement or some variation on that. Right? Or you're going to maybe do the Reconstructionist thing, or you're going to do the Renewal thing, or the Secular Humanistic thing. So you're probably going to stay on that side. If you kind of push in the other direction, you just convert again. It's not a big deal. You do the snip-snip, or you do the whatever, the mikvah, that stuff, um, and, and that's what you do. That's it. This is not a big deal. Now, if you were born Jewish, and your father was Jewish, whatever, but your mother wasn't, if it's so important to you that, say, conservative and orthodox rabbis accept you, just convert. I mean, particularly if you're doing it conservative, just go to a conservative rabbi, just say, hey, you know, I've been practicing Judaism for 20 years, you know, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. My dad was Jewish, my mom wasn't. I, I kind of want to just firm this up a little bit. Uh, what would it take to just go to a mikvah? And that's that. And they'd say, okay, well, you know, cool. We'll get together a bait den, or uh, I'll be the one person who, who's there, and uh, we'll take care of it. There's a mikvah fee. Uh, you, you pay, and that kind of helps keep the mikvah up and stuff like that. And that's it. It is so not a big deal, folks. So, yeah, that's it. That's all there is to it. Are you legitimately Jewish? As far as I'm concerned, you are. 
I don't play identity politics. You know, if a person wants to call themselves Jewish, I, I just go with it. That's halakha anyway. You're not supposed to question. So you just go with it. But ask yourself this question. Who do you want acceptance from? When people talk about legitimacy, who, who are you comparing yourself to? In whose authority are you trying to live? What matters to you? That's the thing, is that, you know, we worry so much about legitimacy, but we're not looking at it from the other end. Don't put legitimacy on yourself. Put it on others. Ask, why do I have to do this? Why do I need you to accept me? It's amazing how many people with, with bright, independent minds will revert to this kind of submissive place where they're seeking the authority of others, whether it's in conversion or how they practice Judaism or uh, whatever. Ask yourself, why am I giving these people authority in my life? Why does it matter so much to me? What am I getting out of this? Because I think if you ask yourself this question, you might suddenly realize it doesn't matter. So think about it. Send me an email, podcast at rabbipatrick.com, and let's talk some more. Thanks for listening.